Even though no human being is perfect, we always have the chance to bring what's unique about us to life in a redeeming way. Mr. Rogers said that, but for someone who is a perfectionist, that's easier said than done. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss dying to be perfect. JR, welcome to the interview for the Facing Project co-host position. Hi there. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. You have an impressive resume. Looks like you were the junior assistant in training to the fan club president of Madonna's third from the left backup dancer for the Blonde Ambition Tour. Well, actually, I was the dance instructor. I brought a skill set to the dance team that no one else had. I could do a lot for you, so... Well, uh, this is a radio show. You know no one can see you dance, right? Well, I have rhythm in my voice, and that's all the people need. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, let's begin. Tell me about a time you had to deal with a difficult coworker. <sighs> yeah. Well, this one time I had to work with this guy, blonde, glasses, a voice kind of a mix between Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. We worked together to help communities tell their stories. And let me tell you, he's a real jerk. His name is Kelsey Timmerman. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. Seems (laughs) like a great guy. (laughs) Honestly, though, for the record, I don't think you're a jerk. Most days. Next question. This isn't going well for you. What's your greatest weakness? I'm a perfectionist. And end scene. So, perfectionist. It's the acceptable answer to the job interview question, what's your weakness? Oh, me, I'm a perfectionist. But trying to be perfect can often have some drawbacks, making one more at risk for OCD, workaholism, eating disorders, and social anxiety. I think we all can agree that our society is obsessed with being perfect. I know this and probably feel it more than a little, but I don't understand it, especially with the work that we do here at The Facing Project. We're constantly reminded that as humans, it's our imperfections that connect us, that make us more authentic and relatable. But perfectionism is on the rise. The largest ever study on perfectionism found that it has increased substantially over the last 25 years especially in young people, there are three types of perfectionists. The self-oriented type, who hold themselves to a higher standard and do whatever it takes to avoid failure. The other-oriented type, who expect others to be perfect. And the socially prescribed type, who believe others expect them to be perfect. Since the 1980s among college students, self-oriented perfectionism has increased by 10%, other-oriented by 16%, And socially prescribed, the one where society and others expect me to be perfect has increased by 33%. The researchers of this study were deeply troubled by what they found and attribute the increase to two things. The first is harsh and controlling parenting practices. When children are rewarded based only on achievements, they start to internalize that parental love is based on performance and isn't unconditional. And the second unrealistic societal pressures, including media images and all the ways young people are constantly evaluated, ranked, tested, and quantified. There are test scores, but there are also the social media likes and followers and friends. Kids feel pressure to be perfect in the classroom, on the field or court. And there's also the pressure to look perfect. 
like the airbrush, Photoshop, digitally and surgically enhanced images of celebrities and influencers. And this pursuit of perfection, along with having a jerk of a boyfriend, led the storyteller in today's show to an eating disorder. The story comes to us from Logan, Utah, and a facing project led by Utah State University. It was told to Alyssa Whitbeck by a woman named Renee. Renee has struggles with anorexia nervosa and is deep in the throes of her battle. Listener discretion is advised. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Claire Misko, CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association and the author of You're Amazing, a no-pressure guide to being your best self. More than a vase. Renee's story as told to Alyssa Whitbeck, performed by Melinda. We're going to lose her. We have to save her life. I looked at the doctor, hoping he had confused me for someone else, but I could tell from the way my mom sobbed and clenched her seat that he wasn't. I actually could die. Just a few months before, I was normal. I had graduated from high school, moved out on my own, and started college on a scholarship. I was athletic, and I knew where my life was going. Well, as much as any 18-year-old can. But things were different when no one was looking. My boyfriend subtly told me I wasn't good enough, smart enough, skinny enough, sexy enough. I became obsessed with perfection. I spent eight hours a day doing homework in a major I hated because that was how I could live up to the standard of being the smart girl. I eliminated bread from my grocery list. I eliminated snacks, dessert, all meat besides chicken, and then I eliminated chicken. When I lost weight, I felt proud. I was in control. I was beating something. My mom called the doctor one day. She explained the way my pants that had fit in middle school now hung in flaps of denim where my butt used to be. That's how I ended up at the doctor's office, being told I might die. I was diagnosed with severe anorexia nervosa and malnutrition. Anorexia nervosa is an eating disorder that is characterized by weight loss and difficulty maintaining an appropriate body weight for height and age. According to the National Eating Disorders Association, it is often brought on by body dysmorphia, a mental health disorder that involves an obsessive focus on perceived flaws. People with anorexia generally restrict the number of calories and the types of food they eat, and some people with the disorder also exercise compulsively. Nearly 30 million people of all ages and gender identities, suffer from an eating disorder. Research from the University of Texas at Austin indicates that body dissatisfaction, feelings of shame, anxiety, and self-consciousness, is the best-known contributor to the development of anorexia nervosa. I had an EKG to test my heart rate. It was 29. We put pacemakers in people with heart rates that low, the nurse said as she wheeled me over to the ER. I was admitted into the hospital for a couple of nights. Beeping constantly woke me up when my heart rate slowed to a dangerous level. Mom cried helplessly in the corner of the room. My brain wasn't functioning properly. Neither were my liver, heart, and kidneys. One misconception of eating disorders is that those affected eventually die from starvation. While malnutrition does play a role, Most of these individuals are not dying from hunger. In fact, their bodies are tricked into thinking that they aren't hungry at all. They die from organ failure. An eating disorder like anorexia nervosa can lead to a greater risk for heart attacks, kidney and liver failure, 
seizures, and insomnia. All of these can eventually lead to death. The National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders states that at least one person an hour dies from an eating disorder. And according to the National Institute for Mental Health, it is the most fatal mental illness that exists. I'm fine. I'm not sick, I said. But nobody listened to me. I was just trying to be perfect, that's all. This is your time to fix this, sweet pea, my dad whispered. Weeks after I was released, I went with my mom to Chick-fil-A. Panic set in as I stared at the menu. Several employees asked me if we were ready to order. I couldn't. I wanted to, but I couldn't. Once we were home, I watched mom's shoulders shake as she closed the door to her room. How can I keep hurting her like this? What's wrong with me? Mom came back and wrapped her arms around me and We cried for what had happened. We cried for what I've become. We cried because we wanted things to get better, but didn't know what to do. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to love my imperfections. Each day I take a leap. I nibble an extra bite, give myself a compliment, or write something for which I'm thankful for. I'm starting to get better. But progress is slow, and it hurts. I'm learning to find my worth in myself as a person, not as some thing, measured numerically. My body is just the vase for the flowers that are my soul. To protect my flowers, I promise not to shatter my vase. After all, I'm enough, and I will always be enough. Mr. Rogers said, you are a very special person. There's only one like you in the whole world. There's never been anyone exactly like you before, and there will never be again. Only you. And people can like you exactly as you are. We want to welcome to the show Claire Misko, the CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association and author of You're Amazing, a no-pressure guide to being your best self. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your organization supports individuals and families affected by eating disorders. What does that look like in action? Well, the National Eating Disorders Association is the largest organization serving people who are personally affected by eating disorders. So Um, We run a helpline. People can call us or connect with us online um, to ask questions, get support, get connected to treatment in their community. Um, We also do a lot of programs across the country around education and awareness and prevention. And our goal really is to send a message to people who are affected that recovery is possible um, and that uh, there's hope. There's a lot of shame and stigma still associated with eating disorders and disordered eating. So so our goal is to, um, to break through that stigma, to get people to start talking and recognize that 
Um, everyone knows someone who has been affected by these illnesses, and um, we want to get people to help and to recovery. So are eating disorders on the rise? Is it something, a particular type of disorder that's becoming more common? What is the current situation? Well, statistics on eating disorders are, are pretty challenging. Um, we know that 30 million Americans will struggle with eating disorders at some point in their lives. And that breaks down to 20 million women and 10 million men. Um, that said, because of the stigma and shame, we also know that eating disorders are widely underreported and underdiagnosed. Um, so we think there are actually many, many more people who are affected by these illnesses. And in terms of, of diagnoses, you know, something that's uh, interesting that's happening in the field and a lot of conversations around this, um, and we hear this a lot from people who contact us through our helpline, is that not everyone fits neatly into a, a diagnosis that is spelled out um, by the, um, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which lists all of these specific criteria for eating disorder diagnoses. Um, there are many people who are in gray areas um, who struggle with um, what we call disordered eating, um, where their thoughts and behaviors around food, weight, body image, uh, eating and exercise are, are seriously disrupting their lives um, in negative ways and their ability to connect with others and feel good about themselves. So we're very focused um, at the National Eating Disorders Association about talking about that spectrum of disordered eating behavior um, and encouraging people to reach out an earlier point. We know the outcomes, the treatment outcomes are much better for people who reach out at an earlier point. Um, so there are a lot of confusing messages for people to navigate. And we know that a, a lot of people are affected by these issues. I also find that we're living in a moment of body positivity, and we're seeing a rise of that. So I think of the works by YA author Julie Murphy, the rise of Lizzo, <laughs> the hashtags like normalize, normal bodies. How do these types of messages impact your work? This is a really important and relevant conversation um, for the eating disorders field um, because we know that uh, when we talk about eating disorders, we're, we're talking about uh, biopsychosocial illnesses. So there's a lot of compelling evidence to show that there are people who are predisposed to developing eating disorders, um, that they have biological and genetic um, risk factors that play a big role in the development of their eating disorders. We also know that there is a lot of connection with other mental health diagnoses. Um, so eating disorders do not exist in a vacuum. Most people who have eating disorders also struggle with other issues, including anxiety, depression, substance use disorders. Um, many people have past histories of trauma. Um, that's an important factor as well. And then, of course, we live in, um, in an environment that places such a heavy emphasis on perfection and, um, you know, it used to just be thinness as the ideal. Now we, we talk about 
fitness and, you know, having the quote unquote perfect body. So there are these environmental factors that, that play a big role. So when we have um, celebrities and high profile people um, and a whole movement that's really talking about moving toward more body acceptance and positivity, that does have a big impact um, and plays a big role in the work that we're doing. We see a lot of people engaging on social media. Um, NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association, has a, a very um, robust social media presence and a lot of very strong and positive voices in our community. Um, we also see there are a lot of risk factors involved. So when we talk about um, hashtags and social media engagement, it, it's not a black and white uh, positive negative question. It's really about looking at you know how people are using social media and their engagement um, to promote recovery and um, and acceptance. Hmm. So when we have people talking about the importance of more diverse representation, that can be a huge positive um, because we we are um, all living in this culture where there's an onslaught of images and messages that promote very unrealistic ideals. So it's, it's refreshing to see that conversation happening um, and certainly has a really positive impact um, for many people in our community. Yeah, I mean, it probably is a double-edged sword in that, you know, I've seen studies that the more people are on social media, the more unhappy they are. And I don't know, you know, cause or correlation with all of that, but just the images that come at us all the time of what perfection is, but it's also can be this tool of education, but probably more important than seeing an image or a hashtag of someone promoting body positivity is having someone in their life that can be that example. Is that the case when someone has like a, a mentor they can turn to or someone in their like more immediately close to them in their actual life as opposed to just their social media life? Yeah, I think it's a combination. And and, and the storytelling is, is key here uh, because there is so much shame associated with eating disorders and uh, body image issues that there's a sense of connection um, that that is really important um, when you when you see someone um, sharing their their story in an, an authentic way it makes you feel less alone um, and that's that's very very powerful uh, on the flip side we see a lot of the uh, thoughts and behaviors that are really core to eating disorders, um, including perfectionism and uh, social comparison, they're played out in a quite a literal way in a social media environment. So you have um, this tendency for, and, and I've talked to teens who routinely take you know, upwards of 50 photos of themselves before they decide which one wow. they're going to post on social media and where their entire day or week can be impacted by, you know, the number of likes they get on a particular photo. Wow. So this, this idea of, um, you know, collecting likes is, 
is an amplification of the thoughts and behaviors that are um, that have long been associated with eating disorders. When I struggled um, as a teen, I, I grew up in, you know, I was born in 76. So I pre predate the, um, you know, for my teen years, the, the social media explosion. So I was collecting pictures of models from magazines, um, which was harmful. I didn't have this ongoing um, onslaught of images through social media. I also didn't have that experience of constant comparison. Um, certainly I was comparing myself to my peers and, you know, people that I saw in, in media, but the media environment has changed, um, so much and so rapidly that that's something that, um, for those of us who work in the eating disorders, very tuned into as a major risk factor. So I take it that your personal experience must have led you to that work. Do you care to share a little bit more about your journey and how it inspired what you do today? Sure. I, I came to this work from my own personal experience. I struggled with an eating disorder um, really starting in middle school. Um, I would say at, the, at about the age of 11 or 12, um, I, I started on a diet, uh, which is very, very typical. Um, most people who uh, have eating disorder experiences have some experience with, with restriction and dieting in some way or another. And this was very um, common. It was something that a lot of my peers were doing. Um, so was that your own decision to go on a diet or was that kind of just influence from your peers or family? It, it was my own decision, but it was were certainly a lot of external influences, um, you know, from peers, certainly it was, there was a lot of talk, um, a lot of negative body talk, you know, so I was also struggling with, with anxiety, depression, and there was this feeling that I had at that time that if I could get to a certain weight or look a certain way or achieve a certain level of quote unquote perfection, um, that I would feel better about myself and uh, and that it would alleviate uh, some of these anxieties that I had. And so that set me down a path. And um, as is very common with people who struggle with eating disorders, I, um, I engage in a lot of different behaviors. So uh, I restricted, um, I moved from that to... Uh, binging and purging. Um, I also have a history of compulsive exercise. And so there were a lot of different behaviors that were linked to, um, to my ordered eating. Um, what I found was validation in the early part of my eating disorder. When I first, when I lost a little bit of weight at the beginning, there was a a lot of approval, <laughs> a lot of people saying like, Hey, you look great. Um, and that really set me down a, a, a very dangerous path. Mm -hmm. Because American culture, at least it feels like for me is so obsessed with physique and dieting. Do you see the statistic, the numbers in the U S being higher when it comes to eating disorders or what does that look like compared to the rest of the world? 
Uh, I mean, we're definitely seeing um, eating disorders across the world. Um, and I think as Western media and beauty and appearance ideals are spread um, further and further. Um, and again, it's not it's not a cause effect um, in that people don't watch TV shows or look at magazines or um, social media and then instantly spiral into eating disorders. But there is a, a much um, broader influence, I would say. Uh, but there's some very interesting research emerging right now about the connection between um, food insecurity and poverty and disordered eating, mm. uh, particular, particularly as it relates to binge eating disorder, um, which is a kind of a game changer in how we conceptualize eating disorders, because I think that media body image influence is, is absolutely there and still is a major driver. I think it's critically important for us to look at how eating disorders fit into that as well. I have a friend who um, worked as a model for years and she talks about how she just was not eating to maintain her model status i guess and and she got really really sick and was like at home living with her parents and was like almost seemed to be just kind of fading away to some extent and then she went out one day and someone in the industry saw her and told her how amazing yeah she looked yeah and that's when she said i'm out and then she became like a, a plus size model. Her name's Kate Dillon. Oh yeah. And which is like, sure. oh, you, you're familiar with Kate? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so she's like, she's like, just, you know, she's just normally sized person. And we call it plus size, which is crazy in its own way. I'm, 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 I'm a father to an 11 year old daughter. And it sounds like, you know, to hear you say like, that's when it first became a struggle for you. Like we're at this, we're at that stage where yeah. I have family and friends that will comment, uh, oh, your legs are starting to fill out or, you know, things like that or how much she eats. And um, what advice do you give to parents uh, of, of young girls who are growing up in this world that is bonkers? <laughs> yeah. I think bonkers is a very, very appropriate term. And I'm, I'm a, a, a parent as well. My, my daughter is about to turn 10. Um, in a few days. So I'm at that, um, I'm at that point where I'm reflecting on how I felt at, at my daughter's age and also just, you know, reflecting on my, my professional experience and, um, where we are as a culture right now. Um, I think number one for for parents and for those who um, you know have influence over young people in whatever way that is, um, that we have to start talking about food, weight, body image in holistic terms. I think kids are getting a lot of mixed messages about good foods and bad foods and what it means to be healthy. And we have to talk about health as we're talking about what foods make your body feel strong, what exercise and movement 
allows you to, you know, enjoy your time with, you know, classmates and that it's not about number on a scale or um, the body mass index, which is kind of a, you know, it's a very problematic way of, of measuring health um, anyway, but really moving toward that conversation about what, what do we talk about? What do we really mean when we're talking about health? And, you know, I've, I just had a conversation a couple of days ago with a parent who was telling me about how her daughter was um, fat shamed. And, you know, some school called her fat and we know that, that weight based and appearance related bullying is the most common form of, of bullying. So how to address that, um, as a, as a community, because it really does contribute. Um, and as you said, with, with Kate, um, and I've, I had this experience as well, there are comments that have a lasting impact, um, particularly at that age. Um, you know, with, when you're talking about, um, you know, elementary school and uh, middle school aged young people, a comment about you look fat or you look great, you lost weight, you look great. Um, those are the kinds of comments that um, for many people, I mean, it's, it's, it, it can be it has an impact regardless, but for those who might be predisposed to developing voters, those are the kind of comments that can be highly triggering and lasting, lasting impact. If someone is currently battling an eating disorder and they have to be happen to be listening to the show, what advice would you give to them? Well, first of all, I would say uh, if if this is an issue that you relate to or it rings a bell for your or someone you care about, um, to know that you're not alone, um, that disorders affect many people, um, and that they are trouble. And the earlier you can reach out and get help, um, the better, more effective that treatment can be. So I would encourage people to, to talk about what they're going through, um, to reach out to someone they care about, um, to visit the National Eating Disorders Association website or contact our helpline where we have trained volunteers um, who can direct people to help um, and, and to learn more about this. Um, I think many people who we hear from reach out after struggling in silence for many, many years. Um, so if there's anything I can say, it's reach out early. If you, if you're starting to think that this is an issue. Um, and, and again, many people don't fit neatly into a, an eating disorder diagnosis, but if your thoughts and behaviors around food, weight, and body image are causing you distress in your life in any way, that's enough of a sign to reach out for help and to know that recovery is possible. And there's a community. Um, we are here as an organization. There are millions of people who are affected, and we want to read that message of, of hope and recovery. 
Well, Claire, Ms. Go, the Facing Project, we believe that the our individual stories sometimes can be the way that we make the biggest difference in the world because we know someone else needs to hear them. And we really appreciate the way that you've turned your story into helping other people. And we really just thank you for being on and for the work that you do. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be part of this. And I appreciate the work you're doing. Um, we are, as I said, big um, proponents of storytelling, and we need to hear more of these stories. So thanks for your work. Thank you. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. And it's produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.